Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. The journey is such a beautiful thing because we are all on a journey. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. Old Hollywood is still intact. Every horse runs hard, but when they win, and they know it. They've got this little sass about them. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my med pack, swim to the beach, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I said, what are those? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Even if monarchs go away and we never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again if they die out, it is just a little indicator of larger threats my dad said, so what were you guys doing in the desert? I said, we were taking nude photos. Hey, everybody, welcome back. I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I am finally feeling a lot better. I'm over the whole COVID thing. But I have a little story that I have to tell you. It's just like the craziest thing that happened. So last week, I shared that my credit card got hacked. The text came through from the fraud alert department for that particular credit card on the first night that I was in Korea. So it wasn't the way that I really wanted to start my vacation, but we got it all taken care of. We went through the whole entire trip. Everything was great. I was checking my accounts. I came home. I thoroughly checked my accounts. Everything was good. There was absolutely no fraud. The problem is that while I was away, there were accounts that charged monthly or yearly fees against the credit card that I had closed out. And so I had all of these emails, well, not a lot, I had like three of them, but I had these emails that said, hey, you need to update your account information, like my phone bill, (laughs) the phone bill didn't get paid. So one of them is a subscription, it's completely optional, does not have to be renewed, and they were letting me know that they could not renew the yearly fee. I thought when I have a minute, I will update that. Like it's not as pressing as making sure that my phone bill gets paid. So maybe three or four days later, I thought I really need to pay this. And I was going to when I get a text that a charge has been made against a credit card that I've never given them that I opened after the last yearly payment. So they don't even know about this card. And I'm like, oh my God, all of my information has been breached. Somebody got into like, I don't know, my IRS account or something like that, where they've got all of my information. This is not good. So I call this second credit card company and tell them that I'm going to dispute the charge. And they're like, well, did you call the vendor? And I said, no, you know what? That's a good idea. I'll call you back if there's a problem. So they're like, here's the number you can call. I call that number and I get a recording that says, basically, we don't talk to anybody. Email us. And I'm like, are you kidding? I send the email and I didn't get a response as quickly as I would have liked. So now I'm talking to the credit card company again. And I get this lady on the phone who was very very conservative about the way that she wanted to approach this. She didn't want to close out my credit card. She wanted to wait several days. She did see that there was a pending charge. She said, well, you know, maybe 
you provided the information and don't remember providing it or it was provided as part of some other information that you gave them, which to be honest, ticked me off a little bit because I mean, that's like gaslighting somebody. I knew that I had not provided this information as part of anything else or directly. So there was no way that they should have had this card. I didn't understand it. And she just literally was like, I don't think this is a good idea. I really prefer for you not to do this. I would like you to wait. I could close this card out, but if the charges are legit, they're just gonna roll over to the next card and it's gonna create problems for you. I mean, it was just all of these statements like soft nose. And I didn't really understand what this lady was doing. So I wasn't very happy with that. And the following day, I get an email. This is really why I'm telling you guys all of this. It turned out, it all turned out to be fine. The email said that the vendor was part of a really large corporation that you would all know if I said the name. And because that is the parent company, there is a loophole that allows this smaller company access to financial records that the parent company has. And I had updated my credit card number with that parent company after I came back from my trip. And so that's how they got this number. And I was like, that is shady as hell. And so, of course, I have to call the credit card company back. Do you see how much time is wasted? I mean, I didn't have to, but my understanding was that they were going to launch an investigation. And now that I have the information about how the vendor got my credit card information, I just wanted it stopped. I didn't want to have to deal with this anymore. Um, So I called the credit card company and now I'm talking to a different agent. I tell her everything. She goes, I see all of your notes here. I see that you've called us several times about this. And I'm very, very sorry, but I have to tell you that there was never an investigation launched. And I'm like, what? And then I just had to take a deep breath and go, the vendors paid, which was my intention. My credit card was not stolen. And so there's really nothing else to do here. Well, this agent was really upset on my behalf. So she wrote something up about it. And then she goes, you know what? I have really learned so much from you. I'm like, really? And she goes, I didn't know that a company could get credit card information from their parent company that had not been given directly to them by the clients. And again, remember, we're talking about a subscription service. It wasn't even something super essential. So they just renewed my subscription by getting the information from the parent company. You know, if I hadn't have gotten that text, I might have not known. And it is a subscription that I want to continue. So there isn't any harm here, but it still seems like a shady practice to me that this can happen. And the agent that I spoke to at the credit card company agreed with me. So I don't know. I don't know where you sit on this. I am not a financial guru. I just, as a consumer, feel like I need to aware that this is a practice that occurs. So anyway, I'm going to move on from that. 
This week, I am super excited to be able to bring my interview with my really good friend, Ed Thompson. We went to school together. He is a uh, aircraft fabricator. He lives off the grid. He's an adventurer. He's like such a joy to talk to. And so I really hope that you enjoy this episode with a caveat. We talk a lot about the olives that I was brining, and I know I've talked about them in a couple of other episodes prior to this because it takes a long time to brine these. So they've been my friend in the kitchen for at least three months at this time, I think. And they were at a very critical stage when we left on our trip, and we were gone for much too long. And so when I came back, they were ruined. I had to throw the whole batch out. (laughs) So I do not have olives this year. I'm hoping to try the whole process all over again next year and be able to share some with my friends. But in the meantime, please grab a cuppa and join Ed Thompson and me in this In the Company of Friends talk. Enjoy. He was standing by the dance floor, and I was like, who is that? I was like, I don't remember her. And so I went up and talked to her, and I was like, you weren't in my class, were you? And she goes, no, I was in the class after us, you know. And um, she said that they opened it up to all years right before the reunion. So she got an invite. And I thought I would have still remembered her, but she was in AP classes. So she went through high school with like the same... 28 students or 24 (laughs) students or something like in every class every now and then they'd have a class and she called it the general population she'd go oh yeah it's a general pop class (laughs) that's so funny health and pe were like the only classes that she ever had that were with all the other students otherwise it was the same students in every class all through her high school when you said that that's where you met her i'm like wait a minute she went to school with us because i don't remember her either yep she was a year behind us wow That is so cool. So you never thought of going to a reunion at all, and then you meet your future wife there. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It worked out well. I uh, She gave me her number and it was funny because she gave me her number. And then I, whenever somebody gives me their number, I usually call it right away. So they have my number also. Mm -hmm. And so she gave me her number and I put it in the phone and then I hit dial and it rang in her pocket. And I was surprised. I was like, oh, I was like, oh, you gave me your real number. (laughs) 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 that is so funny oh my god why wouldn't she i uh, I mean it's ed (laughs) well well, i don't know i guess i was used to you know i was very awkward around around girls grown up you know into my 30s probably that's funny yeah and then i i I asked her out on a date so many guys are like that you know because i mean there's so much pressure like you know, you got to have the right lines and you got to say the right things and, you know, all of that. And it just gets in your head and keeps you from being yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the reunion, see, she grew up in Torrance and Lameda and Harbor City, that same area that I grew up in. And so we kind of felt like old friends right off the bat, Mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, because everybody that lived in the South Bay there, we kind of all had this little I don't know. It was a really good place to grow up. I think we had a it was. kind of like a click, you know, there was, it was very mixed. So we didn't really have much racism and it just seemed like everybody was kind of chill, kind of had that beach city vibe. Yeah. There was a culture about it. Yeah. Anytime that you talk to yeah. anybody from, you know, I grew up in Lomita 
it's just a slow, relaxed, like you said, very, you know, surferish, beachy type of vibe. Like everything's good. It's a sunny day. And, and it was, it was just a, a relaxed yeah. time. And like you said, that diversity and it yeah. was great. Yeah. And it's funny yeah, that you great, mentioned great that because I mentioned that to my daughter all the time. Like, you know, every once in a while she'll say something about 2020 and I'm like, I was as upset about it as everybody else, but it kind of blew me away because of where we grew up. When you grow up in a place that's diverse and you accept everybody, it's really hard to wrap your head around that kind of prejudice and just anger towards other people yep. because we were so we weren't on opposite poles at any time. Nope. It was we were always like no. right in the middle, right? Because yep. the middle is where progress happens, where conversations occur. Like everybody talked to each other and everything was yeah. good. And yep. I'm like, I don't think the world's always been like this. I think we went backwards for, <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. Kim and I talk about that sometimes. And and we talk about how lucky we were to grow up where we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a good place. And it still is, you know, so it's awesome. My parents still live in Lomita. So um, I was oh, just nice. there a couple of days ago. And yeah, you know, it's a cool little place. Yeah, you know, now we live up in Tehachapi, a couple hours north of there. But we just visited there about a month ago. Kim's uncle still lives there. And we went out some of our old spots where we used to eat you know, and mm-hmm. and we're looking for the old landmarks and some of them are gone. The place is a little more crowded than it used to be, right. but it's, it's, and man, houses are a million dollars each now. Yeah. The prices have <laughs> gone know? up and places where the mom and pop store is gone. Yeah. Definitely yeah. the landscape is changing, but I think that uh, core of it is still here. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of bummed that they tore down the parasol. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was almost like a landmark. Like they should have saved that as a landmark, I think. It was such a classic restaurant, such a classic building. It was a landmark. Yeah. I mean, a big giant umbrella, right? And it was round. And then inside were all of those umbrella (laughs) lamps, upside down Uh umbrellas. And, Uh And, you know, the food wasn't that great, but the building itself was (laughs) really unique and classic. And now it's just, you know, a drugstore or something. It's like a million other corners in the in the country. Exactly. How long ago did you move? Uh, it was 07 when I bought my property up here. And I was living in Orange County at the time. And I would come up here on the weekends and work on my property. So mm-hmm. I was still working, living down there. And I did that for several years. And then around 2010, I got a job here at Icon Aircraft. And then I was up here full time. Were you working on planes? Because I know that like you've worked on some really amazing planes, but were you working on them prior to that? No, I was like a cars and motorcycle guy. Uh huh. And I had some general fabrication experience. Um, I had met a friend up here. He ran the Napa Auto Parts up here. And I rode in on my motorcycle one day and he was like, hey, I'm looking for a riding buddy. And I'm like, well, me too. So <laughs> we kind of hit it <laughs> off. And we started going on rides, and then he sent me this link to Icon Aircraft. It's just a small startup right here in town. And I was like, oh, that's such a cool airplane, you know? Yeah. So I I went and knocked on their door, and I was like, hey, you know, um, you guys hiring? And they said, oh, man, we're 
we're not hiring right now. We're almost out of money. So we'll be out of business here in seven months if we don't raise some more funds, you know? Oh my gosh. Well, they did raise some more funds, but just a little bit. And uh, just to kind of limp along for another, it was almost like two more years till they finally called me. And then one wow. day they got their round C funding or something and they got millions of dollars and they called me and they said, Hey, you still looking for a job? And I said, heck yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> so uh, they gave me my start in aviation and I learned a lot there and had a, it was a really good crew and we had a lot of fun because it was just a still a really small company. Yeah, that's the time you want to get into those companies. You really get to know everybody and there's definitely that sense of camaraderie and yeah. and uh, family. Yep, yep. And there was, I don't know, I think five of us out in the shop or something. And uh, we were just hammering on that plane every day and they would fly it all the time. We would make changes, you know, make a new set of wings or make a new tail and put it on the plane. And then they would go fly it and test it out. And we developed the plane all the way into production. Wow. And then in 2015, they bought a big facility in the Bay Area in Vacaville and moved the company up there. And I was I was kind of done with the company at that point, And it was a good time for me. And I didn't want to move up to Vacaville. I, I had my property here and I was still working on it. And uh, it was a good time for me to, to leave the company. So with that plane, when you said that you would fabricate new wings or a new tail, were the parts interchangeable? I mean, you know, I grew up with a Cessna, so I grew up flying and I'm just like trying to picture this plane. And we actually had a unique Cessna. It was acrobatic. It was an aerobatic, I believe was the name of it, which is acrobatic backwards or Citabria. I'm sorry. It was Citabria, which is aerobatic backwards. Oh, how neat. Um, you know, we would go up and we'd do rolls or my dad would take the plane straight up into the clouds, kill the engine, <laughs> bring it back down in a death spiral, start the engine back up and pull out of it. And we just thought it was the best thing ever. You know? oh. oh my gosh. That sounds so exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a fun plane. Um, you know, clearly what you were doing was so different from a Cessna. Yeah. Yeah. So the Icon plane is a composite plane. So it was made out of all carbon fiber. Um, the wings on it would fold, which was a real neat feature. So the wings would fold and you could put it on a trailer and bring it home, put it in your garage. Wow. So that was a real neat feature. And it also made it very easy to design new wings for it. They were developing a spin resistant airplane. So what that means when you reach a certain speed, like a, a, you can fly a plane and it'll go slower and slower and slower. You know, you cut back on the throttle and you're going slower and slower till finally it reaches that point where it doesn't have lift anymore and it just kind of falls out of the sky. You know, no, it'll go into a stall mm -hmm. and go into a dive. And the Icon plane, they, they designed it to not do that. So what would happen is it would go into a stall, but you could still fly it. It would just, it was different flying. It would kind of mush along, but only half the wing would stall. It had a, it had like one shape for the wing for the inboard part of the wing. And then the outboard part of the wing, it would change to a different design. And so only half the wing would stall and the outer half would still stay connected to the air. And, uh, and it made it for, it made for a very safe airplane. So would it become kind of like a glider at that point? Um, yeah, yeah, kind of, mm -hmm. it would, it had a great glide ratio and, um, you could still, you know, you could just kind of idle along in stalls, so to speak, and still kind of fly it. 
it wouldn't fly the same, but it would still fly completely controllable. Wow. For how long? I mean, like how far would it go at that point? Oh, you could go as far as you wanted. You know, it would still, you'd still lose altitude, but very little altitude. Um, so it depends on how high you were when you started, but you could fly it indefinitely in that stall state. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was really neat. And since the wings would fold, it made it very easy to change the design of the wings and essentially just unbolt the old wings and bolt on your new wings and be good to go. Was it considered an experimental jet? Yep. Yeah. No. So it was a prop plane, a pusher, pusher prop. And I had a small four-cylinder engine, a Rotax engine. It's actually a light sport now. They got it certified as a light sport, which is a new, a fairly new class of airplane that is kind of limited by its size and weight. And you're limited to how high you can fly it. And you can't fly at night. And you can't fly in bad weather, which you don't really want to fly in bad weather any, ideally. Right. If you can avoid it at any point. And uh, it was an amphibious plane, but it had retractable landing gear. So you could take off and land from land or water. And, oh, wow. Uh, which made it a lot of fun. You know, I got to fly in it several times and take off and land from water. And man, there's just, there's nothing more fun. You know, you feel like you're kind of like in a jet ski and then all of a sudden you're <laughs> flying in the air, you know? I get a picture of um, Indiana Jones when his partner's waiting in that amphibious yeah. plane and <laughs> and then there's a snake in there <laughs> in the air yeah yeah you'll have to look it up it was really a unique airplane um they're having problems now you know they got so many investors that it came to a point where the investors ended up owning most of the company and they made some price hikes originally the plane was supposed to be a couple hundred thousand and it ended up over four hundred thousand. Oh dear they lost a lot of their back orders and i haven't sold too many airplanes since then but it's but it's a beautiful airplane and kind of a unique cockpit they designed the cockpit uh more like a sports car and so you get in and instead of having a hundred instruments looking at you there's only a handful and the styling is just gorgeous. It looks, you know, like a, a Ferrari, like you're sitting in a Ferrari or something, you know? Yeah, really plush interior. Yes. Yeah. So why, I just had one question about that. When you said that you couldn't fly it at night, is it just, it didn't have lights or? Uh, no, no, it actually did have lights, but that class of airplane, sport pilots, sport pilot class, you're not supposed to fly those airplanes at night. Oh, pilot is kind of it's kind of an in-between class so i don't know if you're familiar with an ultralight you see some guys mm -hmm. that, you know have these little airplanes that are powered by little tiny motors and you don't even need like any license to fly those they're almost like powered kites or something you know <laughs> and sport pilots is kind of in between you, the license only takes 20 hours of instruction to get it's an easier license to get the airplanes are supposed to be smaller and lighter and slower and they're supposed to be safer, but plenty of people still still get hurt in them. There are, um, our test pilot passed away um, flying flying that airplane. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that was it. Was after I left the company, and uh, he was flying. Uh, the The problem with one of the problems with that type of flying, it was designed to be a lot of fun, and so low altitude flying right near the water, right near the water's edge, is really a fun type of flying but it's also the most dangerous type of flying. And he was flying up by Lake Berryessa up north, and he 
turned up this canyon and they think that he made a mistake and turned up the wrong canyon and got in trouble real quick and hit land. And um, him and his passenger passed away. Oh, that's so tough. And, yeah. you know, out here we get a lot of that because Torrance Airport is nearby. Yeah. So, you know, there's planes going there and taking off all the time. Um, so we constantly hear about it. And I'm assuming out there in Tehachapi, there's airstrips near you where the same sort of thing. You live near them. And, and so you know how dangerous it is to fly planes. Yeah. In uh, 2011, there was a guy flying up our canyon. We live in a box canyon. He was flying up the canyon to buzz his buddy's house. It was kind of an annual event for him. And on this certain weekend, it was a hot weekend. When the temperatures are high, you have less lift in your airplane. And he didn't have enough lift to turn around and get out of the canyon and crashed. Oh, gosh. And him and his passenger passed away. And then the plane crash started a fire that ended up burning 14,000 acres. Oh, my gosh. 30 homes, in, <laughs> including our little place. And we lost everything. I remember that. Yeah, that was a, it was a bad day. And um, we just had to kind of start over, you know. We cleaned up the property, and Kim was working for a wind turbine. Uh, they were a wind farm construction company at the time, and they came out on the weekend a couple of weeks after the fire with a bunch of bulldozers and water trucks and about 20 guys, and they cleaned our property up for us tremendously and saved us years' worth of work. That's amazing. We had started to build our house. We were living in a little Airstream trailer at the time, and we bought another Airstream because that one, we lost it in the fire and pulled it out to the property and kind of started all over again. Wow. And have you built up from that since? So, yeah, mostly mostly I just keep buying property. So whenever I hear about another property that comes up for sale that adjoins ours, I've been purchasing it just to kind of expand our property so I don't have to worry about neighbors, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're still in the process of building a house, but it's going kind of slow. Mm-hmm. And we stay up there. We have an Airstream trailer and we have a mobile home up there. Oh, nice. And we have our gardens and I'm always working on our infrastructure, our power system and our water system because it's completely off grid. So we generate our own power. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Is it sun panels that you're yeah, using? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Solar panels. So, and then we have a battery bank. I use a lithium iron phosphate battery. It stores enough power for about three days. So if we have a storm that lasts more than three days, sometimes I have to start the generator. But otherwise, the solar system works great. I love it. And we get all the power we need from it. That's awesome. And I know you've got goats and chickens and like a a actual farm going there. Yeah. 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 And we had a wild turkey that came to live with us for a while. Oh, and we named her Gobbles. And she, <laughs> she was so cute. I think when she came to us, she was kind of henpecked, like all her tail feathers were missing. And she was a really small wild turkey. And uh, I did a little research and found out that often the smallest turkey in the flock will get picked on by the other hens. And till finally one day, they, they just get fed up and said, I'm out of here. Screw you guys. <laughs> and she just showed up at our place. And she flew into our chicken coop area and hung out with our chickens. And every night she would sleep with the chickens. And then in the morning she would fly out and she would just be walking around the property. And then when I went to feed the chickens in the morning, she would follow me back in the chicken coop and I'd hold the gate open for her every morning and she'd walk right in. 
And then she would just hang out with the chickens all day. And she was bigger than all of them. So none of them picked on her. She was kind of the queen of the flock there. We had her for about three or four years. And then she passed away about a year ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Turned out wild turkeys only live like three to four years. Oh, really? So she was really young when you, when she came to you. Yeah. She was still pretty young. Yep. And she'd give us an egg every now and then, but (laughs) not too many, not like chickens. Yeah. That pecking order is a real thing. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, it is. But she was she was a really sweet bird, and we we loved her company. And we've had several goats. We're down to one goat right now, one mean old goat. <laughs> and at times we've had up to sixteen chickens. We're we're down to about six right now. We had a predator get in there. We think it was a fox. Oh and, no! Uh, so we lost some chickens that way, and then I think I lost some more to a dog, one of my neighbor's dogs. Oh! So it it just happens, you know. Yeah. Living off grid in the mountains, sometimes we got a just about maybe it was about a month or six weeks ago. Now we had this big storm. We got about four feet of snow over a couple of days, and most of my neighbors, our fences are four to five feet high. And so when you get four feet of snow, all of a sudden, all the animals are getting out because, you know. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Yeah. The fence is only a foot tall now. And so animals were getting out left and right and stuff happens. But that's just part of mountain living, you know. Wow. You know, I didn't even think about that. How did that affect the animals getting so much snow? I mean, did you take them in and get them out of the weather? Because I know that that was pretty crazy there for a while. Yeah. So the chickens actually deal with it fine. You kind of had to shovel out their door because they have a coop that they go in at night and we Mm -hmm. often close the door. And so you kind of shovel out the door and open up the coop and they'll come out often if it's sunny. If the weather's really bad, often they just stay in their coop. And as long as they have food or water, they can handle cold temperatures extremely well. Um, They actually have more trouble dealing with hot weather. So the, the chickens are fine. The goat uh, I don't know if it's just because she's so mean and ornery or what, but she, she can handle <laughs> freezing temperatures. We've seen her out there with icicles on her, and she still didn't want to go inside. Oh, my God. But, but uh, she can handle freezing temperatures fine. She's got plenty of fat on her. She's well-fed. And the dogs and the cats, we'll let them in in the winter if they want to come in, which they usually do. So, But not all our cats. Some of our cats are stubborn, and they'll just go hide in one of my sheds somewhere. Oh, my gosh. And they're fine out there. That's so funny. But, you know, we just make sure everyone has food and water and a warm place if, if they want it. Mm-hmm. So they're fine. Uh, I think my wife has more trouble with the deep snow than all the animals. <laughs> <laughs> we were snowed in for a couple of weeks. It was 17 days until we could drive out. Right. So uh, we had plenty of food and water. Uh, we ran out of booze. Again, oh, dear. Which... Yeah, which could be a little <laughs> bit of a, a problem. But otherwise, you know, as long as you're stocked up on firewood and we have a pantry that we keep well stocked and we're always working on that, trying to get it even better stocked, that um, it's no problem really. If, uh, one of my neighbors still hasn't come down the mountain and it's been, you know, a month and a half now and they're, they still haven't come to town and they're fine. They grow their own food. They have a big greenhouse and they have chickens and they're raising cattle now too for meat and they have freezers that they run on solar. And so they have plenty of meat stocked up and they're fine. Yeah. Pretty self-sustained. 
my aunt and her husband, they live out in Arizona and they've got this huge compound where it's the same thing. They've got like this hydroponics system going inside of a greenhouse. And I don't think that that they get snow like you did, uh, but they've got fish in the water and a wheel that picks up that water and waters all of the vegetables on top. And so it gets fertilized from the fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a, you know, that's a beautiful systems. I would love to do something like that someday. They've got their chickens and got like, I don't know, 30 different fruit and nut trees that are growing. And yeah, they're, they're just pretty well sustained. They've got all the solar panels. And I think they've got something like, I want to say 400 acres. I don't know that they're all together. I think that there's like a property in between, but they've got about 400 acres. And wow. so, you wow. know, you go, you have to go up to the top of this peak and you look across the desert and like way out there is one little light sparking, you know, like a little star and that that's the closest neighbor. <laughs> that's the sun shining oh, off how, of a window from their closest neighbor. How neat. How neat. Yeah. You would like to get there. It's a, you know, when I first started this off-grid adventure, I thought, oh, you know, maybe two or three years and I'll have it all done. Well, (laughs) now I realize it takes 20, 30 years is a little more realistic. I think it's, it's a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. And it's a constant, right? Yeah. Constantly, constantly tweaking everything. Yep. And there's always something, you know, and you can work on your system to get it a little less labor intensive, but there's always something to do, you know, but it's fun. We love growing our own food. Mm -hmm. We have probably half a dozen fruit and nut trees, and I would love to be even more self-sustaining, get a lot, you know, get a lot more trees. Uh, But I think we need more automatic watering systems. So Kim doesn't have to spend so much time watering. She could spend more time just picking the fruit and nuts and preserving them, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, you guys do a lot of preserving, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. I've got like two vegetable boxes. They're like six by four each one. And so when we get tons of tomatoes, I'll preserve those. And I've done, you know, refrigerator pickles um, Mm -hmm. and as well as canned ones. Um, Right now I'm brining some olives Oh, honey. Yeah, those are really good. Do you have an olive tree? No, I don't know if they'll grow where we live. Mm. We get down to about 10 degrees in the winter sometimes, and some trees can't handle those temperatures. Yeah. But I would love to grow olives. Where Where did you get your olive? Do you have an olive tree or did you get them? I from- bought two olive trees and I put them in pots and it took five years to get my first batch of olives. I got these little saplings. But I also have a cousin who lives in Ojai. So every once in a while when I go up there, if the olives are ready, her neighbors are more than happy to let us pick the olives. So if you know somebody in the South Bay, because they grow like crazy out here, who's got an olive tree and is just sick of them, just hit them up and go and pick a bunch of olives. And it, you know, it takes a little bit of work and, and you have to be patient because it's like a two to three month process to get them to the point where they're edible. But then I always put like a slice of lemon, a clove of garlic in there, some herbs. And so you get to flavor them any way that you want. And they just far surpass anything that you can get in the market. Man, you're 
You're making my mouth water. (laughs) (laughs) If these turn out okay, I'll send you a couple of jars. It's not, it wasn't like a, a big batch, but I'll send you some. And the only thing with brining is because it's such a long process that you've really got to pay attention and make sure that there's not, you know, fungus growing on top. I mean, it's just like with anything um, or mold, I guess, you know, I shouldn't call it fungus, but um, you have to like really pay attention and be patient and tweak it, like add more salt or, you know, do this differently or whatever. But I love doing stuff like that. I'm sure Kim does too. Yeah, she does. You know, it seems like every year something different will explode in our garden. And one year it's like, oh my God, what do we do with all these tomatoes, you know? And and then last year it was eggplant. Yes. Just our eggplant were just going crazy. And and it was like that scene in Forrest Gump where it's like sauteed eggplant and buttered (laughs) eggplant and breaded eggplant and eggplant stew and, you know, and uh, we we just had eggplant like, you know, 15 different ways. Yeah. And we're still eating it because uh, Kim made these eggplant patties. Oh. And then we froze them. And I think one of she made like an eggplant lasagna that she froze. That didn't last too long because it was so good. Oh, my gosh. Um, and, she, you know, it had, you know, cheese and sauce in it and everything. It was all ready to go. So you'd come home from work and what's for dinner? And like, well, how about eggplant lasagna? I'm like, okay, you know? Yeah. And you just warm that up and that was delicious. And it was nice to have it in your freezer, just ready to go whenever. So maybe we can do some bartering for your olives. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. I could come up and visit. It sounds like a cool place to visit. I'll just bring some olives with me. Oh, oh, it is. And Tatchby is a cute little town. It's a mountain town kind of up above the desert. And they have an annual apple festival, and it's just a cute little town. We really like it up here. What um, made you decide to go off grid? I mean, was that your original intention? Or at what point did you know that that's the direction you were going to go in? You know, ever since I was a little kid, my dad used to take me out to go motorcycle riding. And we would usually go out to the desert, uh, sometimes kind of near here. And I always was just kind of enamored by the being out in the, away from the city, just being out, even in the desert, I thought it was beautiful. And I was like, this is so cool out here. You know, <laughs> I was five years old and I was like, why doesn't everybody live out here? You know? <laughs> and I guess I just kind of always liked the idea of just having space and being close to nature. And then when I learned about people living off grid and making their own electricity and, and having wells and all that, it just, it, it always made a lot of sense to me. You know, it seemed like you're, you're less dependent on other people for your power and your water and your food and all that. Mm-hmm. And in case some sort of catastrophe happened or economic collapse or whatever, that you wouldn't be so affected by that. And living off grid, really, you really learn that that's true. You know, we could be up there and, you know, if there's a uh, a run on toilet paper, <laughs> let's say, which was, right. <laughs> which was kind of weird. You know, we were fine because we we're like, well, we got plenty of toilet paper in the out in the shed. You know, that's mm-hmm. and or or if there's a run on whatever, you know, we a run we, on eggplants. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we we probably have. Uh, we could probably live for about a year on the food that we have stocked up. I mean, you know, we'd be eating a lot of beans and rice, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't starve for sure. And depending on how the gardens do, you know. As long as you don't get sick of whatever's doing great that year. Yeah. Uh, 
then you'd be fine. Yeah. I noticed that out here too. Like my eggplant just went bananas last year. And then the year prior to that, it was the butternut squash, which was great. (laughs) You Uh know, it just had so much butternut squash. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I, I guess, you know, having a garden is kind of a light version of being off the grid a little bit because you can just go out there and, you know, especially if you have herbs, go out and pick basil, you got, you know, your eggplants going crazy and now you got a few tomatoes. And like you said, you can make this lasagna, you can make all kinds of stuff. And it's like just going out there and picking it. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. And especially the herbs, you know, when you're cooking and I always try to plant the herbs close to the, they call it a kitchen garden Mm -hmm. because it's like the chives and mint and basil and all these, whatever you can. And you'll be cooking dinner and then be like, oh, this, this needs some of this, you know, I need some basil or I need some chives. And you just run out 10, 15 feet out your back door and, and pick them. And then a minute later, they're in your dinner and you're eating it. Yeah. And um, I I really enjoy that. I, I love eating right out of the garden. It feels good. Like, you know, I grew this, I made this, Uh it's as fresh as anything you can get on the lake. It's the freshest thing ever. And, um, and yeah, it's fun. Like it, it inspires your creativity. Oh yeah. You have to, because you know, you, (laughs) you will, we'll come in every day with this whole basket full of vegetables and you know, there's another basket coming tomorrow. So you gotta, you gotta do something with, you gotta either eat all of this or preserve some of it or or something because it's just in the summer it's just non-stop sometimes you know mm-hmm. and you're like well i got 12 eggplant today but there's another 12 coming tomorrow so i better what do you do with that what do you do with that much you know one of my other cousins she has all of these growing tubs out front and she grows fruits and vegetables and sprouts for the local restaurants so oh, she nice. started a business doing that. So, I mean, like, that's something that you guys could totally do. And then they they had an apiary for a little while. So they were getting fresh honey. But, you know, that's like a whole other thing. Um, yeah. You know, you got to go to classes and, and it's expensive to start that. But it was pretty cool. They it, And it took them a while to get that going. But I was surprised when I went to her place and, and I'm like, this is all the space. It wasn't. She didn't need a whole lot of space to grow these sprouts. And uh, she's over by downtown Ventura. So there's all of those little organic restaurants down there. And she was growing the sprouts for a lot of them. That's a great idea. I love that area too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great place. So what are your plans in the future with the property that you're amassing now? Are you going to have planes there as well or you know a shop that you're going to be working on fabricating at well you know originally that was my plan to build a big shop there but this business venture came up that kind of came with a shop in Mojave which is about 30 minutes from my place down the hill at the Mojave Air and Spaceport it came with a big job and they said I could take over the hangar (laughs) so I'm like well great. This is, this is working out great. I, wow. I was working in Colorado for a bit for a company called Boom Supersonic that's building like a modern Concorde. They want to bring supersonic commercial jet travel back to the world. And You just got to, uh, we'll get back to that because I know that one of those planes just came in. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just came to Mojave for its flight testing. And now that I have the hangar, I realized that 
for business, it's much better to have a hangar down in town as opposed to up at my house. It's just much more alive with business activity. Mm -hmm. I have people stopping by my hangar, the hangar next door. The guys have an aviation business that they run out of there. One of my friends works for a company down there called Scaled Composites, and he's bringing by people to show off my hangar. I have some, some of our old projects in there. And I got to meet one of my heroes the other day. He brought by, and he didn't oh, even wow. know that, that uh, this guy made a flying motorcycle. And what? Yeah. And he, <laughs> he, this was probably like a decade ago. And then after that, he made another one. And now he's making a third one. It's like a flying trike. And um, really a neat idea. The wings come off, and you put them up like sails. And you can go down the road with wind power, just acting like sails and charge your batteries at the same time while you're going down the road if, if you have wind. Oh my gosh. And and then when your batteries are all charged, you can take your wings off and put them on the side of the plane and then go fly. And it's a really neat project. This guy's That's just- amazing. He's a, a literal rocket scientist, but he likes to- build flying machines also. So I got to, I got to catch up with him. I met him years ago, but he dropped in my hangar. He didn't even know it was my hangar and he dropped in and we got to catch up. And there's just a lot more activity happening down there. And I realize having a business or a hangar or a shop in town is, is much more conducive to a, having my own business. So I think I'll just leave my structures at home for like my garages and my shops or more like personal stuff. But mm-hmm keep my business shops. I'll always have one in town. It works a lot better. Wow. And that just kind of fell in your lap. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I was working with Boom, that was out in Colorado and I was spending a lot of time from home. I liked working for the company. There's, it's a great company to work for. And the people they hire, the techs out in the shop were very talented. I learned a lot from the guys. They they were doing amazing work and I loved working with them. Very professional guys. But we kind of finished that plane. It was finished building it anyways. So that was winding down and I was looking to get another job in Mojave. And I was talking with the Stratolaunch about working on their hypersonic vehicle. And they're working on some really exciting stuff. And their package that they offered me was uh, the benefits were great, but the the pay wasn't quite what I was used to making, and I wasn't very excited about going backwards in pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I called this company that I had placed a bid with about a year ago. It's actually over a year, like a year and a half ago now. And I was like, "Hey, any movement on that?" And this was just about three days before I was supposed to start with Strata Launch. And he says, oh, yeah, I was going to call you. We just found out yesterday the bid came through and we got the job. Oh, my God. And and then that's the one that came with the hangar and all this work and everything. And so I called Stratolaunch and I was like, you know, sorry, I'm going to go do my own thing. And they said, well, great. Good luck with it. And I started working there in Mojave and it's just taken off. And I got a couple guys working for me now and all the work I can handle. I probably got at least six months worth of work lined up. Nice. What's the name of the company? So it's Thompson Composites and Fabrication. Oh, I like that. So I just wanted to kind of keep it simple and uh, kind of explain what I do right there in the name. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to concentrate on doing composite works. I'll do fiberglass and carbon fiber. And I'll do body and paint because I, I actually kind of enjoy that. And a lot of people don't enjoy that. So a lot of that work ends up coming my way. And I'll do metal fabrication also, machining and welding and stuff like that. That's great. 
So what kind of planes are you working on? Well, right now I'm building, uh, actually there's three planes in my shop right now. I hope that you enjoyed that. I had so much fun talking to Ed about airplanes and gardens and all of those fun adventures. Please come back next week for the second part of my conversation with Ed to hear about his projects, business, and a whole lot more. Check out the show notes. I'll add some selected links. And please take a moment to rate this episode because your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com, all at The Queen Trail Podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E Podcast. I am Sil Annan, The Queen Trail, and until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, blue skies, great harvests, elegance, and